one of the key questions, absolutely essential questions, from an economic standpoint is, are refugees coming into a country in such large numbers a drain on that country's economy, or are they actually a boost to that country's economy? You know, different studies will say different things. If we had acceptance that there can be a positive impact on the economy, that might make politicians and the publics in these countries much more ready to accept refugees. In September, President Obama announced that the United States will resettle at least 85,000 refugees in fiscal year 2016, including at least 10,000 from Syria. At the time, the announcement sparked serious debate. But two months later, following a series of terrorist attacks in Europe and the Middle East attributed to the Islamic State, America's role in the refugee crisis has grown into a major controversy. And in the middle of that controversy has been Ann Richard. She's a Chicago Harris alumna who is now serving as Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. We spoke to Assistant Secretary Richard in late October, at a moment when the media was flooded with images of refugees' bodies washing up on the coast of Europe. You'll hear her talk about how the newly formed Pearson Institute could provide much-needed insights to help diplomats tackle what has become the worst refugee crisis since World War II. And she'll break down how exactly her bureau is working to address security concerns while doing whatever it can for refugees who have survived horrific conditions. As the migrant and refugee crisis in the Middle East has spilled over regional borders to reach Europe, there's been a lot of attention from the senior levels of the State Department, the National Security Council, and the White House to our program. Mm -hmm. And we were already planning to increase the number of refugees we resettle. But there was real pressure to accelerate that, in part to show the rest of the world that we were going to do our share of responding to these uh, global refugee and migration situation. Part of that is providing a lot of humanitarian assistance. We're the leader, the world's leader, in providing humanitarian assistance overseas. And part of it is uh, very active diplomacy to make sure that people are treated well and they get aid and that aid workers can get access to the populations they're trying to help. Mm -hmm. And part of it is resettling uh, just a small fraction of the world's refugees in our country. But even though I'm saying that it's a small fraction of the world's refugees, it's actually more refugees resettled through uh, the UN Refugee Agency than the rest of the world's countries combined. Right. And how do do you think about that at the State Department? How do you sort of balance the fact that we need to pull our weight and set this example without exceeding our means? Well, I think... What you learn as a diplomat for the United States is that what the U.S. says, the statements we issue, the speeches we give uh, when we are behind the placard for the United States at international meetings, Mm -hmm. when you're representing the United States, people listen to you. (laughs) So that gives us a tremendous amount of influence. A lot of other governments look to the U.S. for suggestions, guidance, uh, to put forward ideas. But that doesn't mean that everyone does what we ask. So it's a funny situation where we have a lot of influence, but we don't always get our way. Mm -hmm. And so trying to use that influence to shape really sound policies is part of the job at the level I'm at at the State Department. Mm -hmm. And beyond sort of setting an example in this way, how else are we coordinating with 
you know, state partners in Europe and the Middle East and, and the UN and all these players. So our assistance is first focused on saving lives. And that's to help people in the sort of emergency relief phase. If they're fleeing a crisis, it would be from the time they cross the border until the time that they feel safely settled in either a refugee camp or living in uh, a big city or a village, but able to get some assistance from the UN organizations we fund or from non-governmental organizations. We also fund organizations like the International Committee of the Red Cross, though, and they often work right in the heart of uh, war zones to help people. And so we're really interested in helping refugees, the displaced, but also victims of conflict. We work a lot with the U.S. Agency for National Development. They have half the humanitarian assistance budget. We have the other half. Uh, combined, it's about $6 billion dollars. Uh, we take the lead, like I say, on refugees and conflict victims, and they take the lead on food aid and disaster assistance. Um, and in these complex crises that we're working on right now, it's sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation. <laughs> but then after people get to safety, we might provide assistance for education programs for children or livelihoods programs for adults so that they don't have to languish as refugees, but they can acquire some of the skills they need to be self-sufficient. And if they're allowed to, then they might work and actually hold down jobs, which is a good outcome uh, for refugees. Or sometimes they're given land in certain countries in Africa and they're able to farm. So we support all of that from the emergency phase through to protracted situations where people might start out dependent on aid, but hopefully their lives would be able to shift and they'd be able to do more for themselves. Mm -hmm. With so many different levels of need, What's the process like for deciding who is going to be resettled in the United States? And how is fairness ensured in that process? So the UNHCR and non-governmental organizations that work in the field with refugees keep an eye out for those who are particularly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And they recommend then in certain cases that they be referred for resettlement in the United States. Most refugees don't get resettled. Uh, but for people who have been particularly traumatized or have medical conditions or they are torture victims or, you know, just have terrible things happen to them, uh, that for them, going home again to the country from which they fled well, is just a non-starter. Right. They uh, might be good candidates to start their lives over in the United States. Mm-hmm. Something we've all obviously been hearing a lot is about the security threat and how we accurately and effectively evaluate that without shutting out people who, who could really benefit from coming here and who we would want to come here. Um, tell me about the balance between security interests and making sure that we get people here who, who will really benefit from being here. Yeah, Right now, for years, we've had good support for our budget from um, both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill, from Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. But in the recent weeks, there's been a bit of a split where more Democrats are um, pressuring us to bring more refugees. Um, and we're hearing more from Republicans who are concerned that we will accidentally bring uh, terrorists to the United States. And so we're trying to express support for bringing more and growing the program, while at the same time assuring people who are concerned about um, foreign fighters and terrorists that 
we do everything humanly possible to screen out any bad actors from entering the program and making it to the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. And and are the security background check demands, um, does that ultimately cap or lower the number of folks who can come over? Um, it screens people out, but um, we should be able to uh, meet the targets that we've set out. And in terms of whether people can uh, make it in the United States, we find that that's not an issue. Most refugees are very successful in restarting their lives mm-hmm. in the U.S. They're very grateful for the program. And in the past, we've taken far more. In the Vietnam era, uh, there was one year they brought over 200,000 refugees to the United States. So I'm fairly confident that the U.S. can absorb that number. What we have to do is make sure that our program is run well to bring that larger numbers in. Right. And looking down the road, maybe 10 years, what are sort of the different scenarios we face? Um, you know, what does a best-case scenario look like, and how are we making sure we're, we're heading towards that with this policy? Well, the best-case scenarios is that U.S. diplomats succeed in bringing different parties involved in the world's conflicts to the negotiating table, that they succeed in bringing about a peace. The peace holds. Um, People are able to go home again. The world community celebrates this by investing in reconstruction in places like uh, Syria, South Sudan, northern Nigeria. And the number of people in our program falls to zero because Mm -hmm. there are no refugees. Everyone's living peaceably in the places where they're born. Um, Do I anticipate that happening? Not if past history is is, uh, an indicator of what to expect. Um, But certainly it would be great to have fewer conflicts than we have right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The worst case scenario is that these conflicts spread so that in Syria, not only do they not have peace um, and ISIL is able to continue fighting and spread its evil doctrine, but also then that fighting spills over into other countries. We're very concerned about the countries neighboring Syria, especially uh, middle-income countries like Jordan and Lebanon, that Mm -hmm. having so many refugees show up in their countries could be very destabilizing. And, you know, tensions could result between the local people and the refugees. And this is one reason why we're proponents of providing not just assistance to the refugees, but also investing development assistance in the societies that are doing the right thing and hosting refugees. So you talked to us a couple months ago about our new institute for the study and resolution of global conflicts, the Pearson Institute. Uh, You appeared in one of our videos talking about, from your perspective, why this is an important and timely institution. When I first heard about plans for the Pearson Institute for the study and resolution of global conflicts, I was thrilled. The people themselves were caught up in these crises. They don't have the luxury of sitting and reflecting on what needs to be done to solve this. We need the best minds. The dilemmas of politics. We have too many conflicts right now around the world, and so uh, it's, it's prompting us to spread ourselves too thin. There are not enough aid dollars to help all the people who need help around the world. Mm-hmm. The UN issues appeals seeking contributions to its humanitarian budgets, 
And we're finding that they're about 40, 45% funded. At this point in the, in the calendar year, when they should be much closer to being fully funded, um, mm -hmm. And so other governments, other countries are not able to keep up with this expanding list of crises. The other thing that has changed since the first time we spoke is that the migration and refugee crises that I was talking about have really come to the attention of the general public much more than they were before. And I attribute that to the child's body washed up on the beach in Turkey, uh, Iran Kurdi, who, you know, was just a toddler and just the image of him on the beach touched so many people. And for me, there's a piece of that that's frustrating because so many children have died as a result of the bombing inside Syria, and nobody seemed to notice. Uh, but the other part about it is that now that people are noticing, it may be a good time to educate people about programs like the Refugee Resettlement Program that are, have been happening for years, but perhaps we're not in the spotlight, and also tap people's humanitarian impulses and get them to contribute more to private uh, non-governmental organizations, you know, do-good charities that are doing so much around the world to help refugees and displaced people. Mm -hmm. And are there any areas that you think we could really use some solid research that could sort of bridge what is sometimes a gap between good intentions and good outcomes? Oh, sure, because I'm always being asked for good data, which sometimes we have and sometimes we don't. Um, right. Just on this issue of the appeals, you know, who's funding it? If a government keeps saying that they're doing a lot because they're issuing statements about it, are they just chasing headlines? Or are they really doing a lot with the base funding that they have? Um, you know, the, the numbers of refugees in these countries, if I, I can tell you how many UNHCR has registered, but some of the governments will use much higher numbers. And I never argue with them about it because I know there are a lot of Syrians there. But can we get a better fix on the numbers? Right. And do we have a sense then? I mean, the, the, one of the key questions, absolutely essential questions, from an economic standpoint is, are refugees coming into a country in such large numbers a drain on that country's economy, or are they actually a boost to that country's economy? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot more people working and there's a lot more money being spent by the international community. You know, different studies will say different things. If we had uh, acceptance that there can be a positive impact on the economy, that might make politicians and the publics in these countries much more ready to accept refugees. You are, of course, a Chicago Harris um, alumna. Are there certain strategies or skills that your Harris education provided to you that you use day to day? Yeah, although I have to say that um, at the time I went to school, there was the Committee on Public Policy Studies. Ah, those so, days. So um, they subsequently named it the Harris School of <laughs> Public mm -hmm. Policy Studies. But that makes me feel like, you know, I was part of the Grand Army of the Republic or something instead <laughs> of, you know, <laughs> the U.S. government. But anyway, so um, one of the things that I was really taught at the Harris School was to write short documents to the point. 
And uh, at the time, I remember that the career counselor was saying, you got to learn to write, you know, no more than three pages to capture an entire issue. Mm -hmm. And I got to the Office of Management Budget and I was told, page and a half, three pages? You kidding? We're not going to go that long. (laughs) So it was absolutely the right discipline. The other thing was that between the statistics courses and economics courses and political science courses, I came to feel that, you know, there was almost no field that was impenetrable or so difficult that I couldn't get the basics um, Mm. and start to understand how to use these tools. It's not that I was going to use all these different tools myself, but that I understood the importance of using these different tools and who to turn to to get them and, you know, could sort of test what was good thinking and what was uh, sloppy uh, research and sloppy methods. So I'm not afraid of academic writing, of, you know, intellectual discussions, of uh, journal pieces on different issues. You know, I just Mm -hmm. plow through them and jump in, or I go to experts and I ask them, and I work on understanding the basics of what they're trying to tell and shrinking that down to plain English that can be provided to a senior leader, either as, um, you know, a short paper or a quick elevator chat. And Mm. so that ability to analyze and fully appreciate an issue, but then convert it into plain English for use with people who are not experts. I think that my ability to do those things really started at Chicago. That's it for today. Make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Just search for Radio Harris. And if you're a fan of the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.